Hi everyone, my name is Duration. I'm the coordinator for Surfrider Foundation Oahu. And you are here for our visitor green fee webinar. Um, we're doing this with Amelia, Jack, and Marissa with Conservation International. Um, and Surfrider has just been a supporting organization on this effort. So we'll learn a lot about it today, but feel free to um, just have a conversation in the chat and or drop questions in the chat and we'll definitely get to them um, throughout the event. And we'd also, um, you know, we would also love if you introduce yourself in the chat. So just feel free to say hello and tell us where you're um, from organization or company wise. And yeah, we'll get started with that. So I love um, Jack, if you can introduce yourself and then Amelia. Hi guys, I'm Jack Kittinger. I work with Conservation International. I lead our fisheries and aquaculture program and uh, I've been working on this green fee initiative with Amelia and a bunch of other partners, including DeRay and some folks that you'll meet and uh, just excited after this conversation. Thanks, Jack. Amelia? I'm Amelia von Salza. Um, I'm a contractor with Conservation International. Uh, my background's in environmental economics and I've been working on this um, visitor green fee initiative for the past two years. I'm also a researcher at RCUH and excited to be here today. Thanks, Dere. Awesome. And Marissa, if you want to introduce yourself as well, Marissa is not an official speaker, but an important new part of the team. Yeah, sorry, my camera isn't working, but I'm Marissa and I'm working for Conservation International part time with Jack and the Fisheries and Aquaculture team. Um, and I'm going to be helping coordinate this initiative over the summer. Thank you, Marissa. Um, great. And then, yeah, keep introducing yourself in the chat. I see Monica, or is this Kathy with Outrigger, um, Susan with Aloha Wedding Planners, some other folks here. So yeah, good to see you. It's a diverse group. Usually it's all of us environmentalists. So it's nice to see some business folks in here as well. Um, yeah, so I guess I'd love to start with you, Jack, if you can give us some history, like what is the visitor green fee? You know, how did it come to be and why? Um, just to give folks that background and introductory info. Sure. This is an old idea, at least in Hawaii. It's an idea that's been around for quite some time. And apologies for the sirens. I hope that's not too distracting. Of course, right when you start talking, right? But um, it's an old idea because it's been circulating, at least in the conservation community, for a couple decades in various uh, forms. We got serious about it about five years ago uh, as a matter of trying to look into it to see what, it, what would be possible in Hawaii. Could we establish a system that was uniquely suited to our needs, that benefited the visitor experience, and supported the natural ecosystems that our communities and residents alike depend on? And we knew from many other places, including places where my organization, Conservation International, works, uh, the advantages that these systems provide. Uh, Palau, which we'll talk about in a little while, has a tremendously successful system. So does the Galapagos and many other locations. Amelia will talk about that in due course. Uh, we wanted to look at our specific situation in Hawaii and evaluate first what sorts of elements of such a program might we consider. And that's what we did first. We actually treated it sort of like a moonshot in the very beginning. And a moonshot is something that's you know, difficult to do, but sort of requires all hands on deck to achieve. And so we started some early conversations with folks in the visitor sector, 
We engaged uh, some very talented folks, including Amelia, in helping us research different systems from other parts of the world. And ultimately, we used that to develop uh, some legislation over the past two years. Uh, none of these efforts, unfortunately, have been successful yet, but we did, uh, as we'll talk about later, make some great strides. And, um, and we do think, just to sort of wrap up the kind of high-level introduction of this, I mean, the thesis behind this is pretty clear. Visitors come to Hawaii to enjoy our culture and our nature. And adding a small surcharge to that experience would create thousands of green jobs in our economy to restore the ecosystems that we all depend on. We know that this could actually be done in such a way that would benefit tourism and benefit the visitor experience while also diversifying our economy and restoring a lot of ecosystems that quite frankly have gone on the decline for decades and decades and decades because we are underfunding them. And with climate change and other threats, both local and global, the need has never been greater to provide financing at a scale commensurate to the challenges we face. And there's not a whole lot of options, to be honest, to generate new revenue. This is one that we think could have a lot of benefits with very little downside. Um, and we've seen it work in other places across the world. So we're keen to push it for here in Hawaii. So back to you, Dere. Thanks so much, Doc. Yeah, I think really kind of a key here, of course, is, is how severe the climate crisis um, is and will continue to be and, and what can we do as a community to address that, you know, locally and given the power of the visitor industry. Um, and so Amelia, you know, I'd love if you can maybe talk about for people like, you know, there is this like larger reason why we do things and I know that you had helped you know, work on some of that research. And so maybe talk about like what the research showed and what, you know, what is the, what are, what is an example of kind of exactly how this could look like, like how much per visitor and where would that go? Kind of share some of that more concrete stuff with us. Sure, so we, we started reviewing um, all these visitor green fee programs around the world a couple years ago. And it turns out that there's over a dozen. I had no idea there were so many. Um, some of these are pretty iconic. You might have heard of the $100 entry fee in the Galapagos and in Palau. Um, some of the lesser known programs exist in Cancun and Puerto Morelos, the British Virgin Islands, New Zealand, the Balearic Islands. Um, so all these different visitor green fee programs can range from a dollar a night assessed at a hotel or a $100 set entry fee assessed at point of ports of entry or on your airline ticket. So they vary quite a bit in scale and also in point of assessment. So Palau's is pretty iconic, as Jack said, it's a $100 pristine paradise environmental fee that's embedded into your airline ticket as a visitor to Palau. Um, the Galapagos has a $100 park entry fee that you pay at port of entry. New Zealand recently established a US $25 fee that is assessed via a mobile app that's part of your entry visa process. Um, and Cancun has a nightly like two to $3 fee that's assessed at accommodations. So that's just a sampling of a few of the programs and how unique they all are and how they've been designed to meet the needs of local jurisdictions. Um, and another important way that these fee programs can vary is in how they're managed and governed. Um, so again, this, this design kind of depends on the local needs of the programs. Uh, but in general, we saw that programs with positive visitor perception 
tended to incorporate some type of public-private management structure. Um, so Cancun's environmental sanitation fee is a great example of this. When they went to institute this about two years ago, um, there was concern, well, oh, what if visitor perception's poor because of corruption or lack of transparency? So what they did to remedy that was establish a five-person advisory committee that includes local nonprofits from the conservation and climate work, uh, local academics from the universities, local tourism business leaders, um, a local lawyer and local government, all to kind of oversee and manage how those funds are used. And so far that's really helped support marketing and positive perception around the program. And Palau is another example of a program that has some type of public-private partnership uh, structure and how they oversee at least a portion of those funds. And Jack actually sits on that PAN fund. So I'll let him hop in here and, and talk a little bit about how that public-private oversight has allowed the program to be so well-known and valued by visitors. Yeah, the PAN fund, uh, PAN is short for Protected Area Network. So when Palau established its visitor green fee, or what, what they call, as Amelia's noted, the pristine paradise environmental fee, they prioritized the, the use of that funds for existing protected areas in Palau. Palau is a small place, it only has 20,000 residents, but it's got 16 states and there are protected areas across those states. Those states are sort of like our counties. Um, and the PAN fund structure, the, PAN, the board itself, which determines uh, the yearly spend for the visitor green fee has public officials, like the head of the Ministry of Environment, Natural Resources and Tourism, which would be sort of like our DLNR in Hawaii. And it has private individuals that come from nonprofit um, and for-profit backgrounds. So there's several folks on the board that are from the banking and visitor sector. There's a couple people on the board from the nonprofit sector, like me. I'm the only non-Palauan on the board, actually, um, which is a fun role to play. Uh, and every year they use this money to support jobs in the community. And we get to review the different projects that are proposed and determine a way to use that money in the best way for both the communities and the environment of Palau. And this is a highly successful model. The, fund itself is actually managed in Guam by a fund manager. So there is a actual financial manager whose job it is, is to grow the endowment for that fund. The endowment just being the corpus of money that flows into that. So they produce financial returns uh, that also increase the ability of the fund to support uh, projects. So this sort of structure is pretty common. Uh, we set up a similar one in Raja Ampat in Indonesia, which is in West Papua, Indonesia. You have to pay $100 to enter that area. It's a very popular dive site for scuba dive tourism. And uh, that is managed out of Singapore, that fund. Um, but the fund, of course, is only used for projects in Indonesia, just as the Palau Pan Fund is only used to support Palau um, projects. So that public-private model, we do have examples of that here in Hawaii as well, which Amelia can, can chat to. Great, thank you so much. So it sounds like in Palau, this has been really successful, like $100 per visitor. Um, and, you know, it's obviously 
being managed very well. So can you talk more about like what the general reception has been? Because I know that there's been concern here locally that visitors will get angry or that it'll, you know, ruin local economy or anything like that. So what's the reception been in terms of both both for locals, businesses, and or for all locals, visitors, and businesses in Palau? Is everyone supportive? Was there resistance? And what's the reception now after it's been implemented? I think it's fair to say it's widely uh, viewed as a big success in Palau currently. Um, it did take quite a bit of time to set up, um, as anything does from a policy perspective often. Um, Palau is small, as I mentioned, but their visitor ratio is about the same as ours in terms of residents to visitors. They also share another thing in common with us, which is that they have a ton of um, they have a ton of tourists from Japan. That's their major tourism market. And so they have a lot of visitors that are um, you know similar to visitors that come to Hawaii. And I mean, people are quite happy to pay the fee. The fee is automatically put on airline tickets so when you buy a flight to palau uh, which is the only way you can get there um, they don't have cruise ships like we do but um, they do have airlines of course and that's so it's just built right into the the, the airline fee and so it's added to the trip and you know the a cost of a trip to palau is like a cost of a trip to hawaii it's pretty expensive in aggregate to go there so as a percentage of the overall cost it's very minimal they also started with a very low rate delay. So they started, I think, with $10 and then it went up to 50 and now it's 100. Um, Galapagos did that as well, I believe, where they started with a smaller rate and they've increased it. Um, and, you know, this is at the end of the day, the, at least for Hawaii, we've proposed a $40 uh, initial uh, rate. And one of the bills that we had, which we'll talk about, it got cut to $20. And $20 on top of the total cost of a trip, I mean, people are quite willing to pay $150 to have a COVID test to just enter Hawaii still to this day. So the idea that, you know, a $20 fee, one-time fee, or even a small uh, increase of that nature is going to deter visitors, I think is just ridiculous. Um, but the last thing I'll just add, and this will come into a conversation as well, is that Palau also has an incredible pledge. So they really worked hard recently to set up the um, marketing and communication system to communicate to visitors what the fee is all about. Um, and that's been very useful in terms of not just talking about Palau and the environment, but getting the visitors engaged with pro-nature and pro-cultural behaviors, if that makes any sense. It's sort of engaging visitors in the experience. And that, that actually brings authenticity to the visitor experience, which is you know, just an enhancement overall. So the Palau Pledge video is a great uh, example of how the pledge itself and the communications apparatus has been spun up to support the fee system. Thank you, Jack. Um, Amelia, I, I know that this question had come up a lot about within the legislative session and we'll definitely get into kind of what happened in 2021, but since Jack talked about the simplicity and ease of just adding it to an airplane ticket. Can you kind of talk about why we can't do that here and why that makes kind of the work here a little bit more different? Yeah, definitely. Um, we had some great lawyers at the law firm Covington and Burling help us with these questions. 
Um, of course, being a state within the US, we do have a unique legal and policy landscape, um, right? All of these examples we looked at are abroad. So for example, there's a federal statute known as the anti-head tax that prevents a state within the US from assessing any type of fee like this at uh, an airport or even at the purchase of an airline ticket. So unfortunately, that very streamlined option that Palau uses is kind of off the table legally for us. And we do have to be careful um, with constitutional laws around commerce and comedy clauses and making sure we're not discriminating against visitors. So that kind of informed the policy designs that we supported and proposed in the legislature the last year, which looked at point of assessment on at accommodation or rental cars, which would effectively capture revenue from predominantly visitors as a, as a way to kind of work around these legal challenges that we face as a state. And great, while you're there, maybe you can just kind of overview what bills were introduced, which ones were the favorites and kind of how that all played out. Definitely, we, we were actually surprised to see there were uh, five different visitor green fee bills introduced this past session um, and so, all in all together, there were over a dozen different legislators supporting these with significant buy-in from some legislative le leadership. For example, uh, finance chair as a co-sponsor and WAM chair as, a, um, as the main lead on some of these bills. Um, so the bills that we collaborated the most on uh, were HB 433 and SB 666, which I'll talk about quickly right now. And um, SB 666 proposed a $40 per person visitor green fee assessed at point of accommodation with the explicit commitment and purpose of funding conservation jobs to help diversify our economy and get people back to work post pandemic and more sustainable uh, careers. Um, in general, the bill gained a lot of traction. It didn't make it past crossover. Um, it didn't get a hearing. It had a pretty tricky quadruple referral. Um, but in general, we do think there were a lot of wins here in terms of conservation community coming together with business leaders and tourism leaders to really support this. And I think in general, we do see a surprisingly good amount of alignment from the tourism leaders on this idea that we need to invest in our natural and cultural resources because they underpin our economy, right? They're, Nature is our Taj Mahal. It's what it what brings visitors here. Um, so I think there's a general sense from business community that yes, we do need to invest in these resources. There's just some concern over exactly where that fee should be assessed and how it should be managed, et cetera. So that's kind of what we're working on over the summer to help better prepare us to reintroduce these bills next session. Thanks for that overview, Amelia. Jack, did you have anything um, in terms of the legislative session that you wanted to add or comment on? No, I think not right now. I think we could probably get into some of the dynamics of that if people have specific questions, because there's just, you know, it's such a wild, uh, uh, it was a wild experience for me at least. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so if you all, we can get pretty into the weeds when it comes to how a bill comes to pass and why it didn't pass and all the different bills and committees and chairs and all of that, because it's kind of a big um, complex web when it comes to legislative session, but feel free to drop any questions and we can get more into that if folks are interested. Um, but it'd be great to, to discuss kind of like 
how much money, you know, given the most ideal proposals that, you know, we were hoping to pass, how much money would that raise? And kind of give folks that like a uh, visual of like what that would provide, what that would fund and how that really could um, better our course environmentally here. And for either of you, whoever wants to take that question or both. <laughs> Maybe Amelia, you can go first and then we can go to chat. Sure. Yeah, so we had a DOTAX model, the revenue generation for this bill, SB 666, as proposed with a $40 per person fee assessed at point of accommodations. Um, and of course, these revenue uh, estimates are, are a little tricky right now because there's so much uncertainty around visitor arrival forecasts. But in general, we think we could get around $200 million a year over the next few years. Obviously, that would increase as, as visitor arrival numbers recover over the next few years, which is a pretty substantial amount. Um, I think it's important to contextualize that number to the overall conservation budget deficit that we're dealing with as a state. Um, we did a kind of rapid assessment a couple of years ago at CI to try and quantify that and estimated it at about $360 million annually that we're falling short publicly, privately, and philanthropically in terms of adequately investing in our natural resources. So if we're able to generate $200 million a year with visitor arrivals forecasts for the next decade or so, that's, that's um, taking care of a pretty big chunk of that deficit. Um, so it could be a pretty pretty powerful tool. Again, there's, there's lots of ways to do green financing, but very few that are at such a large scale that don't further burden local residents, uh, which is why this is such a special proposal. Thanks, Amelia. Jack, anything to add in terms of you know, what this could fund, how this could benefit both us as a community and our uh, land and water? Yeah, I mean, it, we could produce certainly enough funding to create a lot of jobs, which would be a hugely beneficial thing to us. I mean, we're we're seeing tourism recover, obviously, but we still have very high unemployment. And this would be a real way to diversify the economy. It's already a, a great innovation sector in our economy, as uh, you hero and others have sort of assessed. But, um, but the, you know, this is like, as far as what the funding would go to, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we, from our, from my perspective, we'd like to see it help us hit our Aloha Plus um, natural resource targets, which is 30% of lands and waters under effective management by 2030. Uh, we could also, obviously, I think it would behoove us to invest in uh, places that also receive a lot of visitor arrivals so that the visitor sector could see the immediate benefit of such a program and visitors, you know, would be, could see their green fee at work, so to speak. I mean, that, that's all part of like the uh, prioritization that a public private model could, could develop. Yeah. And something that stuck with me kind of while we are working on this is that visitors, you know, are one, are the highest users of our beaches, parks, and trails. And it's really just a give and receive situation where they are coming here to experience. And um, it does, you know, when you have millions of people visiting popular areas per year, it does 
affect the uh, ecosystem and that that requires funding and requires staffing to support the maintenance and protection of these areas, um, the littering involved and the cleanups um, that many of us, probably all of us have participated in across the island. A lot of that trash is coming from visitors. Um, in addition to the fact that nearly every nonprofit in our community that works on environmental issues um, is understaffed or has potential to grow and offer increased services for the environmental movement, um, I think are all great reasons. You know, I think the funding to support, you know, helping the environment and to address solutions to climate change are just going to be critical, especially in a place like Hawaii, which is in the tropics and is more vulnerable to climate change than other places in the world. So um, yeah, we, we live in a special place and it's important for everyone who uses our resources to take care of it, whether that's locals, community organizations, businesses, or visitors, um, really all of the above. So that's why this is so inspiring. And I was really excited to see that so many of the, the leadership, you know, folks that are very influential within the legislature were really excited um, about this. So uh, maybe Amelia, can you share, you know, what, like kind of what that could look like next year? Obviously none of the bills passed, but there was like a lot of real, a lot of optimism, you know, 2021 20, um, was mid pandemic. And a, a lot of the legislators were really excited about a potential revenue source um, and the fact that this could also help them meet their own goals for climate resilience and things that, that have been set in the past. And maybe we can just talk about what that looks like moving forward um, when it comes to the bills and, and actually getting them passed. Sure, um, we do have the option of reintroducing these bills, right? Because it's the first half of the biennium right now. Um, and part of our homework over the summer for all of us is to debrief with these legislators to understand how we can uh, redesign some elements of these bills to help make them more successful. But you're correct, we were really pleasantly surprised to see so much uh, legislative leadership supporting this as well as you know, fairly positive testimonies from HTA. Um, in, in the previous year, when we had proposed the study bill, we were actually uh, surprised to see that almost there was more supportive testimony from the business community than from the conservation community. So I think there is quite a bit of partnership between unlikely bedfellows here again, because everyone's recognizing this economic need to invest in our natural assets. So I'm hoping that will be enough to keep propelling these efforts. Uh, forward next session, and I'll let Jack hop in if there's anything to add there. Yeah, the, the, it's encouraging to see that most people agree to the intent and principle of this. It is mostly how we should do this, how we collect the fee, how we manage it, how do we ensure that the fees are actually gonna persist for this purpose. Because there's obviously a long history of you know, funds being established for a purpose and then being repurposed or rated. You know, I think that when I think about support for this and we, we tend to think of the visitor and resident as being sort of separate types of people. But in actuality, I think one of the most helpful reframings that we did for in our exploration of this was to think about visitors as temporary residents rather than as other people that come here. We have some of the most 
high repeat visitors of any place, of any destination. That's because people keep coming back here because they love it. So anything that's going to continue to protect that which they love, you know, they're part of the big, big part of the solution here. So um, this idea of thinking about them as temporary residents sort of just changes things a little bit differently, right? It's true that visitors use a bit more energy and water and other resources, but residents also share a lot of the responsibility, of course, for carrying resources. We're just, we're primarily the ones paying for it right now. Uh, and that's what this model would change. It would create a new revenue model. So as far as the bills, DeRay, I think Amelia hit it on the head. It's sort of like the, the idea tends to mostly be acceptable by folks in the visitor sector who are just sort of arrayed against any trip. It's how we do it. And that is going to be absolutely the focus for our efforts moving forward is how we design this and bring people into that design process so they'll be supportive of it. Yeah, and I know that there's been kind of uh, concerns discussed around, you know, in the past, kind of good intent, well-intended funds being created and then being left in the general fund and, and the concern around management of those funds. So I think that's kind of where, you know, the team wants to make sure that everything is um, received, managed, and distributed properly and fairly um, in, in the different areas of focus that it could support. So I'm gonna run into some of these questions here because there's some good stuff happening in the chat. So from Lee, Anna, thanks for joining. How has the opposing um, position changed throughout the pandemic? Um, is there still an attempted narrative about losing business? So I'll let either of you take that. Yeah, I think there is. Um, sorry, can you guys hear me? Dre, you cut out for a second. Um, yeah, I can hear you pretty good. You break up a little bit, but then it it recalibrates. So it's it's pretty good. Uh, maybe Amelia, you gotta go first. <laughs> I'll go after you. Sure, I, I would say that um, over through the course of the pandemic, some of our allies in the visitor industry had to step back somewhat because it is a hard time for the visitor industry. Um, you know, we will always hear this kind of automatic response that any type of green fee will hurt the visitor industry. And I think there's not enough econometrics data really there to support that, especially when we're talking about a fee at this scale. Um, you know, when we've looked at, for example, when the Galapagos instituted their $100 visitor fee, it had no significant impact on visitor arrivals. Um, New Zealand's Ministry of Business ran a lot of analyses to try and predict how instituting their U.S. $25 fee could <clears throat> impact uh, their overall economy, affect their tourism tax rates, etc., and they found that the impact was very low, if any, and it, it, the benefits of their fee system far outweighed those costs. So I think, you know, we do still hear that argument and, and maybe a little bit more now in, in response to this year having been such a hard time for the tourism industry. But again, I think it, it's as much an emotional response as, as it is one um, maybe driven by the data that's there to back it up. So hopefully we can do more educating around that um, to try and calm those concerns. Definitely. Thank you both. Um, okay, so we have some um, comments from Leanna saying that this could be an, a new model for intelligent, intentional tourism, and people are loving the temporary resident framing. I think that's 
so accurate and compassionate to folks who are so connected to this place and who would, in addition to loving the place, be happy to pay a nominal fee. Um, so yeah, and so Veronica is asking, talking about how a lot of places need on-site educational docents to per protect environmental and cultural resources. Um, and that a lot of this work right now is being done by volunteers, which I can totally relate to. I'm the only staff person for Surfrider for the entire island and we're volunteer runs. So I do think there's a lot of need for paid staffing um, while still, of course, maintaining volunteer engagement, but just that the, you know, having the support of paid staff, not only in the benefit of creating good quality local jobs, but the quality that that can provide to the actual work we're doing on the ground to protect the environment would be definitely a game changer. Um, great, so continue to answer questions, ask questions in the chat function. Um, and then I'd love to, you know, for somebody to maybe discuss the pledge to the Keiki and um, how that, I know that was discussed with the Palau, there's the Palau pledge, and then there's the $100 fee. So kind of what is like the vision for how the pledge would interact with the fee you know, in an ideal world and what's the kind of the plan for that? And so how would they both overlap and um, be kind of unique in their own rights? Yeah, I can take a first stab at that, Dore. The pledge and the fee are hand in hand. They're both two pillars of the overall approach. And they're basically modeled off Palau's approach. So the fee, of course, we've been talking about that. and uh, But the pledge itself is something that already has momentum here in Hawaii as well. There's several island level pledge efforts that have been established, Big Island and Kauai, and um, some that are even sort of like even more specific to place. And so the pledge effort would sort of mimic that where we would have a pledge that visitors would take upon arriving with they understand sort of what pro-Hawaii pro behaviors they would commit themselves to and would bring them into this sort of headspace of how to be part of the stewardship efforts. And, you know, that's at a very high level, right? In Palau, when you go and you enter Palau, they stamp your passport and the, you have to sign the pledge in your own passport and that's your entry visa. So that's pretty, um, pretty effective. We couldn't do that, obviously, but um, we are introducing all travelers back to Hawaii with the Safe Travels app, right? Uh, the fact, the idea that you would stop every one of our visitors before they came into Hawaii pre-pandemic was crazy. Now the idea that you're not gonna stop everyone on their way in is crazy. So we do have a way now to engage folks and maybe the health infrastructure that we've built for the pandemic, can we can add to that to sort of you know integrate the pledge into that. That's one idea for how we sort of engage all visitors in, in, uh, in the stewardship elements and how we might, you know, get them to be more aware, not just about their behavior, but about the fee and the, uh, the, the, the things that that would support on the environmental front. Amelia, anything to add on that, kind of the fee versus the pledge and how they're similar and differ? No, I would just say quickly that um, I think our research showed and talking to different practitioners in these jurisdictions around the world um, showed that these types of broader visitor education and engagement strategies like the pledge can help support positive visitor perception of the fee and where their revenue and their funds are supporting. 
Um, which again kind of circles back to this issue of does it affect visitor arrivals or hurt the tourism economy? So again, if there's this kind of packaging of a, a broader visitor education uh, initiative to support this fee, I think it can support um, positive perception and, and reduce the, any um, harmful effects on tourism. Okay, great. So um, I wanted, maybe Jack, you can give a quick overview on like what, you know, what groups and organizations and or individuals have been involved in this effort, just to give folks that background, like who's behind this, you know, there's Jack and Amelia, um, and some support from Surfrider, but who's behind this and what support is needed from, you know, from folks who are interested. Yeah, it's been driven by a hooey of folks primarily initially from the conservation community and then expanded pretty early to include some thought partners from the visitor sector. I say some because the visitor sector is large, so it's hard to include everyone, but we had some great thought leadership, both from, the, uh, from transportation and from hotels uh, initially into that. And still, those are still thought partners that persist to this day. Um, we had some great support also, I should mention, from the Hawaii Leadership Forum and the Omidyars who provided some great architecture and some design thinking into this, some coaching. Uh, so we're building that coalition. I mean, I think broadly, Duray, it's the conservation visitor sectors primarily that are, have been key to this. And, and, and in the conservation sector, it's not just nonprofits, but also the um, uh, folks in the DLNR and the public sector as well. Uh, as, and some restoration companies like Pono Pacific, uh, that's obviously part of the Kupu network uh, that have been, been part of this. So that's, that's our, I'm just trying to think about the whole journey and who's been on the like ride for that because it's been a long uh, trip, but that's, I think, fair to say that's he's been the main coalition. Thanks, Anna. Amelia, do you want to add, you know, um, what kind of support is needed kind of on the team for this project to be successful in the future? I guess kind of in terms of one outreach, but also um, in terms of legislative success. Yeah, I mean, one action item everyone can take is to follow up to get on our listserv to make sure you're up to date when the time does come for legislative engagement. Obviously, that's a bit of a lull right now over the summer, um, but we'd love to have you involved via that listserv. And, Deray, you're really the expert here on community organizing, so I'd, I'd love to hear from you too on that question and, and how folks can keep involved. Yeah, you know, we had a sign-in letter that organizations could sign on to with a logo, and I think, you know, just folks with larger networks, um, you know, Surfrider has a unique network of locals and visitors, and, um, you know, your organization, your business may have access to kind of a more diverse group of folks it'd be I think it'd be really cool to get visitors you know these folks who love coming here every year who have a connection to this place to get you know a few key voices in there to say you know I would be more than happy to pay this small fee and that it would actually make me feel better give me that dopamine to say I've given back to this place I can enjoy this place more knowing that I'm not just taking and I think um you know that's something people really like and that's why you know if you look at like the the Tom's business model, 
where you buy a pair of shoes and they give one away to someone in need. Um, I think these kinds of things where it shows a compassionate connection to something you're doing as a consumer or as a traveler um, can be really beneficial for the traveler themselves. So rather than framing the visitors as these victims who are victims to all these fees, I think it's cool to say, look what you're providing to this community that you love to visit and to this place that you love to visit. So we always need testimony, people who can provide inspiring perspectives, people who can help spread the word um, about the, the bills when they come up and um, just about this effort uh, overall. So we have a question from Liana. Um, any evidence of a green fee helping to dispel resident resentment? Um, so any thoughts on that, Jack or Amelia? Yeah, it's not a very good tool for that, okay, unfortunately. Um, Hawaii, we have committed to the mass tourism model in some ways. We've sort of committed to that. Um, Pre-pandemic, we had an all-time high of 10.4 million visitors. Visitor spending is down while numbers continue to increase. This is a, a difficult model in order to resolve that issue, Leanne? That's a very good question. Um, I think actually the Hawaii Tourism Authority under its new leadership with John DeFries had a very good strategy, has a very good strategy to engage visitors. Um, unfortunately, I think the legislature has sort of legislated that part of the strategy away, but we'll see. Um, we clearly have a lot of, resident sentiment that is turning negative uh, with respect to visitors. And Stuart Yurton just published an article in Civil Beat this weekend that showed some of that data. Um, a fee will not offset that, but it will create the means in order to internalize some of the visitor costs, if that makes sense, to, to create a way for the visitors to give back at least financially, even if they don't know they're going to do it. Amelia, anything to add on that in terms of the sentiment around the visitors, the number of visitors? No, I think Jack's point was spot on there, although we have seen um, some recent survey results that showed about 75% of residents do support some type of visitor green fee. So I don't think that's going to solve this very complex and broad issue of, of visitor resentment um, at tourists and tourism, but it, it could be a piece of the solution. Yeah, I mean, I think it, in general, as we have over tourism, you know, when things were in, in full flow, it was 10 million per year. And I just don't think that's a number that we have the capacity to maintain in a healthy and sustainable way, just from the perspective of nature. Um, so not only not to mention the traffic and, and the um, crowding. So yeah, it's, it's a tough, tough issue and great question. So another question from Christina is if the grief green fee becomes reality, what will be the process for deciding how the money is spent in terms of jobs, conservation projects, and locations? So I know that this could change and whatnot, but um, maybe Amelia, you can talk through what the design was that, that was built out um, kind of in our ideal world. Sure. So in the bill SB 666, we did propose some type of advisory committee. We suggested that it would include leaders in business, as well as conservation and climate practitioners, as well as youth leaders, 
Um, it, unfortunately, that part of the bill did get cut in one of the hearings, but I think that was just more of a communications and education issue on it than a, a strong opposition to it. Um, but again, I think that's a common point that we keep hearing from all sorts of stakeholders that they want some type of public-private oversight um, to ensure the fidelity of these funds. Um, so that's something that we, you know, as supporters, continue to be loud about that in your testimonies. And um, yeah, I'll let I'll let Jack add on to that. I think you covered it. I mean, you know, th this out in the process, and and by that I mean if we, the design was going to be a fund, right? You're going to have to put these fees into a fund. And then the question is, who made the fund, right? It's intention where say, well, we don't trust the government alone to fund or not to not steal it for another purpose, right? If you talk to folks in the legislature, at least a few of the folks we've talked to, say, well, if it's public money, tax money, then you can't have private interests control that because that's where you get corruption. This is why a public-private shared management system. Uh, is usually the right solution to this. So you have some mix of decision-making authority on the, the fund. And then the fund, of course, the bill would have to be at least somewhat specific about what the use of the funds are. And every special fund that's set up in the state of Hawaii right now, uh, you know, and there's lots of special funds, by the way, like dozens, um, many of which were rated uh, because of the budget situation we're in. Uh, but those funds always have the purpose articulated. So if it's very broad, like, oh, these funds can be used just for only for natural resource management, you can imagine you get a lot of scenarios where what's right, natural resource management, and that becomes sort of part of the conversation. But uh, the more specific, the better. And Palau is very specific. It's only for protected areas and sites that are designated specifically as protected areas. I think we would be a little bit more expansive than that to include a range of stewardship activities. Yeah, and I know, you know, Christina and Stuart from Vi, I think, you know, nonprofits like ours could get involved with the process of like ideating on the advisory board or the distribution methods. It's, it's going to kind of get into the details. I know when the bills start getting drafted for this coming legislative session in January. Um, so I know that there's some great ideas and then some opportunities to ideate on that as well. So I think that's probably going to be a top question, especially from the environmental community, like what will it protect, what kind of jobs, um, and all of that. So the how, as Jack said, the top question. Um, great. So we're coming up on our last questions here. So if you have anything else popping up in your mind that you're curious about, please do put that in the chat and we'll, we'll get through it. Um, but Amelia and Jack, maybe you can both share some kind of closing thoughts like where do you where do we go from here um and how can people get involved so jack do you want to start start us off on that yeah i mean obviously next session is going to be a big push again and i don't live down at the legislature so the past two years has been pretty interesting for me just as an education and what it takes to get something passed if i'm being honest i'm sort of amazed anything gets passed <laughs> how many steps it goes through but um, I mean, where we go next is basically before the next lead session, we're going to be working on the pledge and engaging thousands of kids and helping develop the pledge. That's how it was done in Palau through the schools. 
So when you take the pledge, you actually take the pledge to the children of Palau. And uh, that's going to be really fun. We're working with uh, a great group, Kanu, uh, led by uh, County Keloha, some uh, great uh, minds over there to develop that pledge out. So that's going to be, you know, focusing first on education, but also focusing on business leader engagement. We want to take stock of the legislative session and try to understand uh, now that the session is over, where everything uh, landed. What about the bills was positive? What about the bills did certain folks not uh, support? And how might we forge a middle ground compromise solution that has the best chance of passage next session? And lastly, you know, we, we have to continue to reach out to our brothers and sisters in the visitor sector. It has been a hard two years for folks in that sector. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, the triage and the difficult economic reality that is meant for lots of local people and their jobs, it's hard to understand that. I mean, the visitor sector and the service industries and you know, how many restaurants have gone out of business, they've really had a very difficult year and a half. Um, they're starting to recover now. And hopefully that means that um, we can regreen the visitor experience as we welcome folks back into the islands. That's critical. A pledge can be part of that. A green fee can be part of that. Um, I think historically we thought of the conservation and the visitor sector industry as sort of partially adversarial with things of like this, but we, you know, we've, we're all on the same team here, right? We all want a stronger, greener, healthier, more vibrant uh, economy and intact, biodiverse, endemic, non-invaded ecosystems. That's the only way by the way, those two pillars that we're gonna survive climate change and what it has in store for us and what is already fomenting along our shorelines. So that's a natural coalition. It will take time to build. We have been working on it for years. It's gonna take years more. Um, and who knows what we can get done with a coalition like that? Not just a green fee or a pledge, but a great many things. Um, we need to change the way that we have uh, that we support tourism in our islands and we need to change the way that we support environmental stewardship. So those communities in some sense have to come together in a way that they never have. Thank you, Jack. Amelia, closing thoughts on how people can connect and learn more. I mean, Jack just nailed it there. I would just reiterate that it is a long-term play, right? This took Palau about 10 years to implement. Um, so we really appreciate everyone's ongoing active involvement and, and progress towards this. So thank you all. Awesome. This will live on Facebook through Surfrider Oahu. So feel free to reference it anytime. Um, I put in Marissa's email here. She'll be helping to manage while Amelia's um, taking some time off, but yeah, we'll we'll be around and this uh, effort will continue. The legislative session starts back up again in January. So a few months before then, there will be some more activity in that space. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you, DeRay, for organizing. And thank you, Amelia, for all the incredible work you've done on this. Really, it's been amazing. And we'll get you back in the fall. <laughs> awesome. Have a nice day. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.